Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. We have received quite a few emails. Here are just a couple of them from our wonderful listeners around the world. One of them is Linda, who wrote in um, on her own behalf and also on behalf of her partner to say, Hey, Connor and Gabe, we love your program. Always listen in. And um, in this email, she was referencing a piece we did recently on language, the sound of a, a language, a foreign language that you don't understand and what makes it beautiful or not beautiful to your ears if you don't understand it. Phonetic beauty. Yeah. Of language. And she kind of, I thought it was an interesting anecdote. She said, uh, interestingly, we've been watching Korean dramas streaming on TV for several years now and have grown to love the sound of it. We never expected to because we find some Asian languages harsh. But because we've become accustomed to it, and it is melodious, it's very pleasant. So familiarity and musicality are what make the decision for us. Thanks for broadcasting. Yeah, that the familiarity, I don't think that was included as one of the criteria, because in that case, in the study... They were trying to assess the objective beauty. So the researcher that we spoke to was trying to look at what languages that you don't know sound beautiful and what Correct. what about those makes uh, makes it sound beautiful Correct and it's an interesting idea that in addition to that obje- those objective criteria that um, a different set would be have i heard it very often hmm. and if i've been surrounded by it much does it start to become nicer sounding I think so Yeah right Yeah it's interesting that would make Anyway sense. thank you Linda for that email We also got one from Olaf Frost Connor Olaf. I I'm Olaf, if you're listening, can you... Chilliwack, British Columbia. I know about Chilliwack. I've watched videos on YouTube from Chilliwack, but I'm convinced that may be a pseudonym. I'm not sure. Olaf Mm -hmm. Frost? Well, he says, hello, it seems to me you have been drifting away from science on your show. So here's something that should be covered. And I'm assuming that that came directly in response to the airing of the interview with Sterling Cooper, Mm -hmm. the toxic masculinity man uh, that was last week. Yeah, well, yeah. Olaf says here, we hear about the excited push for supposed green power, but practically everything proposed or used is actually black, like most of what we use here in Canada. And he goes on to say, thorium reactors are what should be made since they offer power and hot water that can be made in cities and towns without transmission losses. He goes on and on and on about thorium reactors. This is a huge topic. Yeah, nuclear power, it's, it's something that you can't just, you know, with a snap of a fingers change, right? And there, at, at the moment, there is one thorium ra- reactor in operations. They're, t- they're testing it in China. The idea has been around for a long time, for decades. In, the, in, in 1970, there was a thorium reactor in operation in the United States that was stopped. It was a political decision that, that happened. The, the science of it, there's a, there's a video on this, a 10-minute video on our Planet A channel, DW Planet A on YouTube. If you want to check it out, it has to do with thorium being used as a fuel. I mean, it's not itself a fuel. There are isotopes, but they aren't fissile. That means they can't be made into fuel. You can take thorium and turn it into uranium-233. It takes a while, but you can bomb it with neutrons and turn it into uranium-233, which can be used as fuel. But that process is is very difficult. And also the, the problem with thorium is that although it is more abundant, it's, there are four times more reserves of thorium in the earth, it's hard to extract. It's strewn about. Uranium is nice and clumped. You can go and get it. To mine thorium, that would be very difficult. 
It's all over the place. You'd have to have mines, gigantic, expansive mines to get the thorium that you would need to make the reactor, to make the uranium-233 that you would need for the fuel. So, yeah, it's a good idea. They are, it would be more sustainable. It would probably be more safer because of the reactors. They're harder. Than, than other kinds of nuclear reactors. Far, it would saying. be far yeah. safer, yeah, because the way they're made physically, they, there can't really be the kinds of meltdowns that, that like the Chernobyl or the Fukushima situations... <laughs> But right, and it, when we're making comparisons, I'm I'm biased on this one. I'm a fan of solar energy. Yeah, and obviously we we are trying to solve the the problem that you have with solar, which is how do you store that energy if you have on the days where you have tons of sunlight, and we haven't really solved that. But that said, I think if you're going to choose one or the other, you would have to um, make a a pretty clear cost benefit analysis for um, for going the nuclear route versus. Um, a relatively cheap and becoming cheaper form of energy in the form of sunlight. Granted, yeah. there is a storage problem there as well. Um, I'm Moving going on. to move on to a much simpler topic okay. than that one. Okay. And it's about voice. Uh, we, actually, everything I'm talking about today, voice, I talked about uh, languages. This is research uh, out of Canada. And we're just talking about Canada. Um, where basically they had people record themselves for 10 seconds at a time six times a day, saying something, and they sent that off, and they were able to establish whether or not that person had type 2 diabetes at a maximum accuracy of, I think it was 90% for men, roughly, and about 85% for women. From the sound of their voice? The sound of their voice. How? 10 seconds, at a, and a maximum of six times per day. How? Uh, what happens there is your voice is different. If, you if you're a type 2 diabetic? If you're a type two diabetic, are we talking blood sugar here? Or what, 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 what were no, they? that would be the that'd be, that'd be the obvious diagnostic uh, tool. That I would is, assume yeah, so. Yeah, that's how you figure out if typically if somebody is uh, suffering from type two diabetes. Okay, what's in a, what's in a type two diabetic's voice that you can hear? It depends on whether that type two diabetic is a man or a woman. So okay. there are differences in the two sexes. Specifically, to get this maximum level of accuracy, they had to look at three features in women's voices and two features in men's. Mm -hmm. For women, it was something called mean pitch, which I think is self-explanatory. It's yeah. the, the average it, of how uh, high or low your... Yeah. yeah, high or low. Mm -hmm. Pitch variability. Is it going up and down a lot yep. or up and down little? Yeah. Something else called rap jitter has nothing to do with rap music. I was hoping it did. It doesn't. It has more to do, I think, if I've understood it correctly, with um, the pauses between... Uh, vocalizations. Okay, the rhythm, the frequency. <clears throat> yeah. With yeah, and with men, it was it was about mean intensity and something called APQ11 shimmer. I won't get into that. What I will say is, in the paper itself, they make it clear. They say, look, in simple terms, the variation in these features found that women with type two diabetes reported a slightly lower pitch mm -hmm. with less variation. So it's going down. And it, it stays more down. It's not going up and down and up and down. There's less variation. With men, slightly weaker voices. So instead of having, I don't know, a strong dynamic voice that booms out like this, it's mm -hmm. kind of kind of receding. And there's and they've had their soul broken by a, by this metabolic disease, or what? Why would it, why does this happen to a type two diabetic or a male type two diabetic's voice? Uh, because of the way the disease manifests itself in men versus women. So huh. men t typically have muscular atrophy their muscles are getting weaker yeah and that, that affects the larynx the way that they would it, that they would vocalize wow. things wow. um women tend to have uh, higher levels of, of fluid retention which again has a different just, just affects the way you vocalize 
And this is something that you and I sitting here, if we were listening to people talk, we wouldn't be able to notice that. It's something that uh, these models can. They're not being used. This is not, it, it was kind of a research. What is and, this technology? What's up? What what kind of technology is this? Is artificial intelligence or what? Uh, I don't know. I mean, clearly, yeah, they have criteria to try to to try to analyze or to try to create predictive models yeah. um, for whether or not somebody has this. But it's it's really a test phase, and it fits into acoustic medicine or or vocalization medicine. Basically, the, here we're talking about type two diabetes, and that's one of the things that you can test for. I mean, it's been it's sort of been proven now. Nobody's doing this out in the wild at this point. One clear and easy thing to look at, for example, would be things connected to your mental health, that the kind of vocalizations change based on your state, mm. uh, based on the amount of stress and cortisol. That, that has, that's well established, that you can see that in the acoustics of how somebody speaks. But even a metabolic does, disease like type 2 diabetes, unbelievable. Yeah. All, cardio- how precise was it again? Uh, in men, it was, I think, 89%, so almost 90% with women, if, if, and women 85% if they used all three aspects of the yeah. uh, all three criteria for women and all two for men. And again, you might be thinking, why? Who cares? Because you can do the for uh, type 2 diabetes. It's a months long, a couple months, you do a blood test. And they've mm-hmm. established you have type 2 diabetes based on blood sugar, glucose levels, etc. So why would you do this? Well, in a narrow sense, sure, there's somebody who is using satellite internet to do telemedicine with the doctor because they live so far away from the doctor, or maybe they can't get to the doctor. And so in theory, you can imagine a future where a, a software system is listening in with the consent of the patient to see if it can figure out something that, yeah. the, that the doctor may Red not flags even... flags going up. Yeah, and there are a lot of things that could be seen or, or, or figured out by the software that at the very least, it would be an alert to the doctor. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. Um, it might be worth you know, using other diagnostic tools to look into it. Ah. So yeah, interesting new development in that field and moving toward a future where your doctor will be hopefully not, re- not relying entirely upon software you know, to make diagnoses, but will certainly be leaning on it and getting assisted by it. Yeah, and hopefully it helps people find things out that, will then, that can then be treated quicker than than if they hadn't had those tools. Right, right. And it may, who knows, also lead to a world where uh, fewer of us have to go into the doctor's office ever. You do all this just, di- digitally. Just give a recording to a, to a machine and then you've got it. Well, I went, I spent two hours in a waiting room a couple weeks back. That's not fun. And it, you're, you're susceptible to getting new infections yeah. that way. Did you read any good magazines? I don't, I try not to touch those magazines oh, okay. inside, inside a doctor's office. Well, according to this study out of the University of Amsterdam, we human beings like to be ignorant. Really? Willful ignorance. They were looking, this is a gigantic (laughs) analysis of 33,000 decisions made by about 7,000 participants in 22 different studies. So it's a meta-analysis looking at all kinds of different Mm -hmm. studies that have already been done on this topic of willful ignorance. And it it says that 40% of decisions made or 40% of the people making these decisions wanted to be ignorant of the consequences of their decision in order to act selfishly and maybe not know oh. about their own selfishness. So game... Um, it's behavioral economics. I mean, really quick, there, uh, this was a gigantic study again, but just one example was a, a situation where you're a decision maker and you can, in an in outcome, you can get $6... And the recipient gets one dollar. 
you, or you, you can get five dollars, and the recipient gets also five dollars. You can treat them fairly or unfairly. Yes, and if if you know, if you're aware of the consequences of your decision, that if you take six, the other guy gets one. You're you're gonna take the five so that the other guy gets the five, right? You're aware of that decision, right? Seven in the in this example, seventy six percent of the decision makers said, "Yeah, I'll take the five, and the other person gets the five. In the situation where they're given the choice not to know, the percentage of people that went with the five dollars so that the other person could also get five dollars or possibly get five dollars went way down to forty four percent. Right. So when they didn't know,、so well, what was my choice? My choice. I was able to can, take five dollars. You can either get six dollars. Yeah. And the other person gets one dollar. Okay. If you take six, the other person gets one. And I know that. Yeah. If you take five, the other person gets five. So you take one less dollar to make it fair, so that the other person also gets five. Right. But then I have the choice of saying in advance, look, I don't, don't want to know. I don't want to know anything about what happens to the other person. Yeah. Check that box off, and now I can just take the six because take of course six, I'll take the six. Okay. And I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't know what happens. Okay, you know, I don't know what happens to you. I get my six, and so people then、it、overwhelmingly, from, overwhelmingly, it went down in the, in that one particular instance. It went down thirty percent in this gigantic study. Wait, sorry, what went down? The the number of people who t- who took the five? No, the number of people who went with the five dollars so that the other person could yeah possibly get. Five dollars as well went down from seventy six when everyone knew when you were aware of what the consequences of your down to forty four in、okay. that one in that one particular example. Yeah, it means that we we like to be ignorant of the consequences of our actions. Like when 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 I go to the store, I I, I would rather be ignorant of how these products were made or how this whatever it is was sourced. If I don't know how it was created, then I then I don't. Care, yeah. Then、okay. I can I can uphold and maintain my image of myself as a good person, right? But if I'm aware of <laughs> what went into creating this product, uh oh, then, <laughs> then, then,、yeah. then I can't. Then well, then I can't really uphold then you have that. To, then you have to deal with the dissonance. Yeah, you have to change change that narrative. Yeah, we're, we're I, not as altruistic as we'd like to think. Is that's it? That may be true in this particular case. I would just like to remind people before we end on the darkest of dark notes. Mm-hmm. Of a study we talked about a few weeks back, where people received actually received ten thousand dollars, and then gave roughly half of it away. They were extremely altruistic in the event of a, a sudden, you know, boatload of cash. Even when people were not aware of it. Yeah. Well, when when uh, when uh, other people weren't seeing what you were actually doing with the money,、so、that that's interesting. Yeah, they were still doing that. So it's yeah, mixed bag, mixed bag of behaviors. We human beings. If you have anything else to add to that discussion or others, or if you want to send us samples of your voices so we can just listen to your voices for whatever reason, please do. We are su at dw dot com. So this is Brett Dean, that the music that you're hearing there,、uh, Australian composer of what I guess you could call classical music, and probably say more avant-garde. Sounds like the backdrop to something that's happening on stage that's scary or disturbing or tense. 
Mm-hmm. Not something mm-hmm. not something you'd listen to in your living room at night to re- unwind? Re- regardless, there are 132 people listening to this performance right now. They're hooked up with all kinds of sensors. It's part of a gigantic research project put on by the University of Bern in Switzerland, Zeppelin University in Friedrichshafen in southern Germany, and the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics. And the question is, what happens to your body when you're listening to classical music together with other people in a concert hall? With other people, that's a, probably a critical part of it. Yeah, well, that, the, the point about classical music is it's, it's dark. I mean, you're in an audience, you're with other people, but you, can't, you can barely see them. You're not supposed to make any noise except for clapping. Well, I, I, or coughing. You're not even supposed to cough. It's like you're not even supposed to be there. Yeah. So how does your body react in this setting? My name is Wolfgang Schacher. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Bern. Actually, I'm a professor emeritus. And now I'm uh, working inside uh, a project called Experimental Concert Research. And this project is about the synchrony of audiences who listen to classical music. We were measuring heart rate, how, how fast the heart beats, and respiration rate, breathing in, breathing out, and also skin conductance, with, which is a measure of uh, general arousal or agitation. And we found that these variables or parameters, for example, the heart rate, are varying at the same time. They're going up and going down at the same time, at more or less at the same time highly significantly, and uh, that is what we call synchrony. How, if I walk into a room yeah. where a classical music concert is being played, how does my heart start, or why does it start beating at a different pace? Yeah, uh, that, that's a that good question. Uh, well, if you think of a pop concert... People are dancing together, moving together with the rhythm, in the rhythm of the music. They are sync, in sync with the music, and that is not very astonishing. But in a classical concert, the, uh, the ritual of the classical concert is that people sit still. They, don't have, they don't, do not have contact with each other, and they're in subdued light, light, lighting. So there is no reason that they should, have in, should be in interaction all their physiological increases and decreases must be due to the music they are all listening to. Even though nobody is aware of that. Nobody is aware that his heartbeat is going up a little and then going down a little in sync with the music. That is totally outside of consciousness. Does this happen, this effect, does it happen to every human being, regardless of, yes. of, of whether they like classical music or regardless of who they are as a person? I think there are nuances to that. Um, if you do not listen closely to the music, 
And if you are, if your mind is uh, worried about something else, then you are not as much in sync with the other people who are listening closely. And that is uh, that is the second part of the findings in in the paper actually, that there are differences, psychological differences, that increase or decrease the. Uh, the the amount of having become a part of the audience's synchronization and what is what are the psychological differences what would make me become more of the mass or become more synchronized with the audience yeah one thing is personality uh, we had a personality test a very short brief test uh, given at the at the beginning of the concerts if you are very open for new experiences higher openness is associated with more being in sync, more synchronizing with the music. And uh, on the contrary, um, if, you're, uh, if you have a higher expression of so-called neuroticism, that means you have a personality style uh, of warding off things, being afraid, being like subdued and depressed, you're not as much in sync with the other people. And all this happens, again, unconsciously i'm not aware of what's going on around me i'm not imitating the people around me it's 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 exactly. simply it's completely unconscious exactly well um yes it's unconscious because people in the audience do not know how the others go with or do not go with the music so uh, they have no information about what the other people do they Actually, this was during uh, COVID times, and we had uh, one and a half meters uh, physical distance between all the people sitting in the concerts. Uh, so they were not, definitely not very much aware of the other people listening, and didn't did see maybe only the one person in front of them. So there is no actual social interaction between the people, but it's. Uh, all the induction, the, the music induces the synchronization. And can this induction happen if it's not a live performance? Like, let's say we're going to play a little bit of the performance uh, in a little bit for our listeners, the people listening to this broadcast right now. Can, can they become synchronized with the, the music by listening to this? Let's say they're sitting in Canada and it's 4.30 in the morning and they're listening to the radio or they're in South Africa or they're in India or who knows where, can they get synchronized listening on their radios or do you, do you, have, to be, yeah. do you have to be in a concert hall? That's an interesting question. I never, I never thought about that. I would say yes. Uh, they are listening at the same time, at their same local time, um, to the same stimulus, the music, and uh, if they're really focused on the music and they feel something happening uh, with the music, and it's not just like uh, like um, um, some sound for them, they will become synchronized without knowing it. Without knowing, of course, they cannot know that uh, many people are listening to the same music and they uh, respond in the same manner. So the, the basic thing is uh, you respond bodily to uh, to a stimulus that you're sharing and what does that even if i'm not aware of it what does it feel like to to be s part of this synchronization with music does anything change that i that i can feel i i do think yes um that is uh i think 
you you may feel, especially if you know that the other people are also listening uh, inten intensively and uh, going with the music, maybe moving slightly or uh, or nodding their heads, then I think you may become a part of a greater role. Uh, you are aware of uh, sharing with something with others, and that is the feeling of well community and of social pro-social feeling actually in the beginning of this research so many years ago i did that kind of synchrony research in psychotherapy with people who are in interaction or in conversation talking to each other we were interested in do they synchronize bodily and yes they do and that is uh, because of their social exchange because of their interaction in the case of music, there, the interaction is minimal. Maybe in pop, in pop concerts it's, uh, it's high, but in, in the ritual of classical concerts, it's not given. Wolfgang, if I can ask a personal question, why, why did you go in this direction? What, what, what led to this research? You were a psychotherapist <laughs> before, and, <laughs> and now you're looking into what happens in a, in a concert hall when you listen to music. What, why? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my background actually is systems theory, and systems theory uh, is uh, always, uh, many times, about pattern formation in systems that have parts, many different parts and elements, and they start moving together and acting together, and that is, uh, they, they organize themselves, and in my view, synchrony is just one aspect of such self-organization, and um, because of that, I thought it always it was uh, worth the time to study that in psychotherapy, in groups, in, uh, in mass behavior, and then also in concerts, in audiences. And now we found, yes, it does. Actually, we have uh, currently we have a, a larger, uh, larger concerts, uh, which were conducted last year, and we're just analyzing and publishing that. And it's about 700 people, and we find the phenomenon of their synchronization is even stronger. And it means something to the, to the people's uh, feeling of being immersed in the music, going with the music, and um, feeling, feeling touched by the music, feeling moved, yeah. Feelings like that uh, have been found to be associated statistically to the amount of synchronizing with all the others. Wolfgang Schacher there, speaking to me from Bern. That was the Experimental Concert Research Project funded by VW, Volkswagen, of all. What? <laughs> yeah. the, car, the car maker. Yeah. They, fun, put, they put a lot of money. Research. In, put a lot of money into scientific research. That's one of the one of the projects that they're funding. Oh, now I'm wondering why. <laughs> I, I all yeah. So many thoughts running through my head as I listen to this. You conducted this interview. Yeah, I've been busy with this DW podcast on YouTube platform that yep. we've just launched. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but the the part of it I was wondering is is it must also hold true as you were saying we have listeners around the world listening to this right now about to experience the same music but if there was a linear TV show that we all watched at the same time with the same catchy jingle yeah. it would have put us without knowing it all in kind of the same physical state like a cro like tens of millions of people 
That was an incredible point that he made. It's about knowing that other people are experiencing the same aesthetic thing at the same time. That's what could lead to this feeling of being together, synchronized, connected. Yeah. I, 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 this is a, a pop culture reference and not classical music, but I, I recently went to the Taylor Swift concert in as a film. Yeah. Not the actual concert, it was a film. <laughs> and you go and you watch the concert with yeah. all these other people. And a real sense of community. Yeah. Like at first, you know, I'm my, my knees bumping around yeah. and I looked around and no, wait, you're allowed. This is a space where people are dancing. Yeah. That was the point that even in this hygienic setting of the uh, concert, classical music concert hall, you still feel it. And we're now going to listen to, okay, there were three pieces played in this uh, experiment. The first one was the Beethoven that we heard at the beginning of the piece. And then the Brett Dean that we heard way at the beginning. And then the one that induced the most synchronicity was Brahms. Hmm. String, string quartet, I think, in G major. So see if you feel synchronized when you're listening to this out there. There are 132 people hooked up with sensors. There are five people playing their fiddles and dozens of scientists measuring synchronicity. Tell us what you feel when you hear the Brahms. We'd love to hear it. SU at DW.com. Science Unscripted. DW. Made for Minds.